Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So we have something special for you uh, over these next couple of weeks. We're going to do a four-part mini-series where it's all revolving around coaching, how to coach, who to coach, what that process looks like, and how that relationship is developed and maintained all throughout the journey. So each part is going to be its own section, and we're going to get really, really deep into this because coaching is so important. And as everyone knows, this show, we believe, you know, in order for an organizational leader to expect change or to implement change into their team, into their industry, into their organization, they first must be the example. And so if we can embrace the mindset of being this coach and being the example, it's going to ripple down through the pipeline and we're going to have a great, successful team. So I am honored to be joined by the Kelly School of Business Leadership Coaches. You know them. You love them. Mr. Ray Luther and Eric Johnson, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited for this series. Well, thanks for having us, Matt. I mean, I can't speak for Ray, but every time you finish your intro, man, I'm fired up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to go. My head's a little swollen too, Matt. I'm, I'm not sure we're quite as big in that, in that but we're we're good to talk to you. So it's, it's fun to be here. It's such an honor to have you guys back on. And I know this is something that it's in your wheelhouse. You guys do a great job working with executive coaching and, you know, even with people that are uh, looking to improve whether personally, organizationally. So I'm really excited to dive in, you know, and so like, we, like I said, at the beginning, you know, this is going to be a four part series. In this first episode, we want to really focus in on the coach, the idea of the coach, what the coach needs to embody, all these principles that make an uh, individual ready to be able to uh, start start leading their team and start mentoring you know, individuals to be able to take bring success and lead team towards success. So Eric, you know, I want to kick it off to you. I love to set some foundational principles or foundational definitions so we can at least set the ground floor and all get on the same page. So talk about the idea of the coach. Yeah. So coaching is an interesting thing to me because it actually is both a verb and it is a noun. Um, and I think a lot of times when, when we think about coaching, we think about the verb sense of it, right? Like it's an action uh, that we take in order to help somebody get better at something, sort of loosely defined. Um, but what I'm excited about with this series is that while that is true, and we will talk about this, I think we're also going to talk about coaching as a noun, um, because what coaching really is in a larger sense is that it is a process. Um, there is actually a way to do it right and kind of a way to do it wrong. And coaching as a noun involves a series of steps that really need to be taken in order to truly unleash the potential of the person that we're coaching. It involves tapping into tools like intuition, curiosity, powerful questions, things like that, in order to effectively do your job. Um, and then as kind of kicking back as a verb, um, it is something that's different from giving advice or telling stories or giving feedback, all of which are important, but none of which I think are sufficient in order to be a truly exceptional leader. So as I think about coaching in the larger sense, I think of it as a process by which um, empowered leader um, who is self-aware understands how to leverage the tools at their disposal to help an individual uh, move towards their greatest potential by unlocking the ideas that they have in their own head. 
You know, Ray, I want to uh, bring you in because one thing that you mentioned, a quote that you said while we were prepping for this series was coaching through an untrained lens is only advice. You know, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. And Matt, I'm always I'm always scared when somebody quotes me because I'm like, oh, crap, what did I say? And, and do I still agree with it in this moment? I, I think, yeah, that is that is exactly what it is it, it, here. Here's why I think there is there is a metaphor that's easily accessed by most people, at least U.S. centric people, when you talk about a coach. And that's the, the role of an athletic coach. Right. Where it is somebody who holds expertise and has a standard and then provides advice or immediate feedback that says, here's what you need to do to live up to that. And athletic coach is one metaphor. You could use a theater director. You could use a a band conductor. You could use lots of different leadership roles. But there's a standard and that metaphor is associated with coaching. And so, therefore, we hear a lot of people say, well, I'm going to I'm going to coach my people. And I'm going to coach my people by telling them how to do this thing very specifically. It's not tapping into their creativity, their resources, their own way of doing things, preferences, et cetera. And it usually gets rooted in, well, what's the preference of the coach versus what's the preference of the coachee, which we'll talk about um, in a future episode. What I I think a a good way to think about coaching, and and Eric and I have done this exercise with a number of classes, is is ask them, well, give us some characteristics of the best leader you've ever worked for, right? And inevitably what comes up are words like, you know, gave me space to grow, wasn't afraid to provide me feedback, but always encouraged me and was very supportive of what I was trying to do, allowed me to really demonstrate my strengths, right? It was the heart of a leadership style, which is known as a follower first leadership style, transformational leadership, which is really coaching. Coaching is a major component of it. And so I think, you know, back to what I said, where it's, you know, it's this advice that's kind of hidden. Well, and a a person could be very well intentioned, but if all you find yourself doing is giving advice of how you would do it, you probably need to up your repertoire of what coaching is and how you might actually get more out of being a follower first leader who allows people to grow in a way that's, that's relevant for them. So let's dive into the idea of how do you become a good coach? How do you become a successful coach, not just for yourself, but for others? And I want to start with the idea of working on yourself because, you know, like we said in the beginning, it's all about working on you as an individual leader first, so then you can exemplify that for for your team and get the change. So how do people who are aspiring or looking to brush up or even just start this coaching idea or wanting to be in that leadership role, where do they begin? I mean, honestly, in, in I don't mean this sort of tongue in cheek, but I, I think I, one of the things I urge a leader is go get a coach. Um, I think a lot of times if you haven't actually experienced what it's like to be coached, it can be difficult to understand how to coach other people. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean invest, you know, a, a lot of money in hiring somebody for a long-term contract. But I think there are a lot of ways to experience coaching and what coaching is um, and certainly, and not to put in a you know a shameless plug, but I mean Kelly is a great place to come to, um, where we can kind of say, hey, here are some places you might want to uh, go to get a taste of what coaching is, so that you can understand where to go. Um, but I think beyond that, what I would say from a self perspective, um, great coaching begins when you understand your own strengths and your own limitations, because I think at the heart of it, what what one of the major philosophies of coaching is is that you as the coach don't have all of the answers. And I think a lot of leaders today struggle with that concept above anything else. They think that their value that they bring to a situation is the ability to have all the answers or the ability to tell other people what to do correctly 
almost every time. But coaching begins with an understanding that I, as the coach or I, as the leader, don't have all of the answers and the value that I'm bringing to this situation is in the ability to view this situation from multiple perspectives. And in this case, the most important of which is my clients or my employees to get their understanding of the situation and how they're making sense of it and how that's different than me and where my ownership of the situation stops and where their ownership of the situation begins. And that can't happen until you as a leader begin to understand um, the, the limits of your own knowledge, power, authority, um, and ability to solve problems. I, but I'd be curious, obviously, Ray, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think the the it's a great question, Matt. And I, I would echo what Eric said and build on it by saying that it really starts with intentionality. And do I do I have the intention of being a coach or do I have an intention of just labeling myself a coach? Because that's what the cool kids are doing now, right? And if I have the intention of being a coach, I might want to have a little humility that says, this might be something I need to learn about. There is a very well-worn path for the coach certification process. So I'm not going to get into that, nor do I. I mean, Eric and I are both certified through a couple different groups and, and we love them. The Hudson, the Coaches Training Institute, it's a long process. It's an expensive process and it's, it's well vetted. Um, so that's great. We're both passionate fans, though, of democratizing the coaching process and really believe any leader can engage in this with the right intentionality. So I think the first thing would be the mindset of, hey, I want to get better at coaching. So start with a beginner's mind. And then with that beginner's mind, maybe open yourself up to Eric's point, experience coaching, right? There's nothing like experiencing it to learn what it's all about. And then maybe read a little bit about it. They're a phenomenal group of coach. There's no shortage of coaching books on Amazon. Some are good, some are not, but you can start with some basic ones like the coaching habit or the, the hand, the complete handbook of coaching by Pam McLean. There, there are great ones out there that can give you a sense of well, what is this and how might it be different than what I've experienced. If you're simultaneously engaged with somebody trained in coaching, you can actually have this conversation with them. Hey, tell me a little bit about how you see it as different than, than others, et cetera. And then I think the third thing, especially within large organizations, is there are always leaders who are naturally good coaches. They don't follow the process exactly, but they get the, they get the best out of their people by putting them first. They're not afraid to ask good questions. They're not afraid to listen. They're not afraid to show a little intellectual humility. So where can you learn from that approach? Right At the heart of coaching, it's about, do I have the skills to ask good questions and stay open? Do I have the skills to really listen, to understand, and can I be present with the person and not put my agenda on top of theirs? Man, practicing those skills, that's what really experienced coaches still work with. So it's not like we're working on you know advanced ninth degree black belt stuff. It's like, man, I really didn't ask great questions in that coaching session. How can I get better at that? Or I found myself distracted in that session because we're on Zoom and I'm a bit burned out on Zoom. So how might I be able to stay a little bit more present with the client? I'm still working on the same thing 5,000 hours into a practice. And so I think for a starting coach, it's one, believe you can do it, two, have the intention to do it, and then three, set out with a little humility to say, this might be a different skill than what I think it is. And so I, I probably need to open my mind a bit on what this actually is. You know, Eric, one thing you said was uh, there was this, it sounded like you were t talking about this idea of, of trust because, you know, you, you, uh, a lot of leaders label themselves as a coach, but yet they're the ones that are saying, hey, I need you to do it this way because it's right. Or, you know, they, they put the work on themselves thinking they need to have the answers all the time, 
right away. And if someone asks them a question, they don't have the answer. Well, then they're maybe not, they're not really a coach. They're not really a leader. You know, it's, there's almost like this power play of, of I'm viewed as a leader. So I have to be the arbiter of all, you know, be, um, to, to talk about that idea and how, how to overcome, because I think that's a big tripping block for a lot of leaders who think, oh, I'm a great coach, you know, because I do have all the answers or, you know, because I do know what to do. Uh, so that therefore makes me a good coach because I can just tell people how it's done. So actually, I'm going to reference a Stephen Covey equation on this one, because I think it um, when I first heard it, it really changed the way I thought about the process of giving advice, which is really what you're talking about. Right. Like um, that telling people what to do is giving advice. Um, we sometimes disguise it in a, in a good way by calling it teaching. Well, I'm just teaching you. But that's not that's still not coaching. That's still me imparting my knowledge on you. And there is a place for that. I don't want to dismiss like teaching, training, giving advice. Those things are important, but they don't necessarily, they're not coaching uh, and they may or may not be helping to build trust. So Stephen Covey defines trust as uh, reliability plus credibility plus intimacy over self-orientation. And um, as leaders, a lot of us really think about the credibility piece, but we sort of forget about self-orientation and we sort of define credibility as my own knowledge of this particular situation. And the more of that I impart on others, therefore, the more trust I'm driving. But the problem is that credibility in that perspective, right, like my own knowledge also makes this situation a lot about me. And the more I make it about me, the more I drive up the denominator of self-orientation and the more I actually destroy trust because I'm essentially saying, you know, in an extreme situation, other people don't have good enough ideas for this. You really just have to rely on me. Reliability really comes down to doing what you say you're going to do. And as Ray referenced earlier, what employees want from their leaders are people who are great listeners, are people who empower, are people who understand autonomy, are those that reward thoughtful mistakes and failure, um, are those that are committed to growing people. And so if you're doing those things, you're driving trust. And to do a lot of those things, you have to actually trust that your people have good ideas and you have to listen to them and you have to allow them to do those things. That is inherent in reliability. Intimacy is similar, right? It's it, This is in a professional sense, obviously, but it's very much about, am I taking the time to understand how my people's values and the way that they make sense of this situation is different than mine? Do I understand how those characteristics are helping us move forward as an organization? Do I see them? Do I hear them? And then do I, do I trust them to go out and act on some of those ideas? And that drives intimacy and it drives reliability. And then when I recognize that by saying, hey, great job, Matt, or excellent job, Ray, or I love what you did there, or hey, I didn't think of that, good for you, you're decreasing self-orientation and putting a little bit more of the spotlight on others, and that drives trust. All of these are then inherent in what makes a great coach a great coach. So that's kind of, I mean, it's a little formulaic, um, but we are a business school at our core. And so that's what makes it credible in some senses. But it also works because all those things matter and they're proven over time, um, both from the lens of great leaders, but also the lens of followers who've, who've achieved success under leaders they trust. 
Every, everything in business school is a two by two matrix or an iceberg metaphor. So it all boils down <laughs> to those two things. If you, if you learn those two, you got it all figured out. That's it. All right. See y'all later. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I kid, I kid, I kid. Although MBA in a box. <laughs> So, so Ray, you know, picking back on that, I mean, the, the there there is an ego that comes into you know the the coaching or can come into coaching does or, does come into coaching yeah it does period I mean, period full stop. But talk about you know the the ego and how that impacts uh, coaching and how that can be a roadblock to many of those trying to um, engage in coaching. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll preface all of this with say I, I want to have this conversation without judgment, right? And I think that I was a former organizational leader at a at a pretty high level in a major, high performing organization. Eric was as well. Um, there's a lot of pressure on leaders. There's not always a lot of training, um, but oftentimes what we find is if if a leader, let's say a senior manager, director, VP, whatever the right level is within your organization, so you know, but they have a significant chunk of the organization. With that role hierarchy comes a level of power. We shouldn't shy away from that, right? Power is relevant and power is how things get things get done. There's a leadership style involved. And then with that leader, there is a sense of ego that's there. And unchecked and unobserved, that sense of ego can get in our own way because it starts to starts to feel like as an organizational leader, well, if I don't have the answers, what good am I to my group, right? If I don't have the, the, the solution that they need, what do I do? That's my role. And if you see that as your role and identity, you're going to lean into that quite a bit. And in fact, you're going to judge people based upon how well they're matching up to your solution or not. The idea that that has to be true is preposterous. If you look at any great leadership uh, material, it starts with self-awareness. Hey, who am I? But you can't be a subject matter expert on all things that are under your control. Run it all the way to the top. And is the COO or the CEO or the CFO an expert on all things in the organization? No, they're not. They can't survive that way. And so, but it still gets in our way. The ego gets in the way because if somebody comes to us, a, a quote unquote piece of value that we think we can deliver to them is the answer, is a solution, right? And that ego feeding of I, I, I provide value through providing the solution leads to this trap, which is well vetted and well documented in books like The Extraordinary Coach, where we just, people come to us with problems Right. And instead of training them on how to develop their own solution through a coaching methodology or good questioning or teaching, we immediately give them an answer because we say, oh, I don't have time or there's also an ego component to that as well, if we're honest with ourselves. Right. And so looking at that is what role does my ego play in having to provide the answer can give us a good sense of self-awareness on am I really willing to step into this? The number one complaint we hear from managers, we hear this over and over again. I want people that bring me blank, not blank. It's I want people to bring me solutions, not problems. Then we go back and we say, well, how are you training them to develop their own solutions? When they're simply bringing a question and you're providing the solution for them, we're not developing that talent. Coaching is a way that we can do that. There's the heart of it is really what Eric and I would label as self-observation, right? Do you have the ability to see your identity, your reputation, the internal and external feedback. There are some great papers on this. Emily Pronin wrote one on how we see ourselves and how we see others, where we have we have the advantage of knowing our internal narratives. So the three of us here know our internal narratives, but I only know you two through what I can observe of your behaviors on how you show up. That's an asymmetry of information. And that asymmetry of information requires me to recognize two things. One, I don't 
people don't see my inside narrative, right? So they can't see the intentions and assumptions I have. And two, I'm judging people because that's often what it is based upon the behavior they show up with, as opposed to maybe diving a little bit deeper and exploring things through good questioning and listening, et cetera. And so if we stay aware of that, boy, we can start to help people, especially managers, again, managers with the intention and humility that really want to get better at coaching, what can they do? Well, how do I even become aware about myself? What are my patterns? What are my preferences? Sure, I have a preference to be the solution giver. Man, that feels great. If Eric comes with a question and I've got an answer, feels phenomenal. There's an immediate reward. Eric's satisfied, I'm satisfied. But I really haven't done much in development terms in helping Eric get where he might want to go, right? And if I'm really critical about it, I may even say, well, the solution I gave was really rooted in my own style and preferences, versus something that maybe Eric builds upon his own strengths in a way he could bring it to the table. And so there's a lot of what I would call, I don't want to call it introspection, I would call it observation that I think leaders could start with to really get at the heart of, you know, what do I know about myself? How do I show up? What are my patterns? What are my tendencies? What do I value? So if I look through what I value, I might see that in advice that I give, et cetera. And that can be very powerful for somebody to start out with as they're building these skills. You know, what's one practice or one uh, way, you know, coaches can begin to, or people who are, who are looking to grow as leaders begin to open themselves because that is a good point. You know, how do you open yourself to seeing yourself the way your team sees you? You know, how are you, how do you break down that facade you build in your own mind of this is how I am because I'm in my head. I know my intentions, but it it comes off differently because your team doesn't see you. They don't see your intentions. They don't see that internal chatter. So how as an organizational leader, do you begin to open up that door? Because, you know, it's going to bring criticism. It's going to bring, you know, potentially hurt feelings or, you know, it's going to be hard at times to hear, you know, Hey, I know that you think you're doing this, but it really comes off this way. You know, it's going to be sobering. So what can leaders do to prepare themselves? And then how do they get the right people to start opening up so they can begin to work on themselves and and change and see how they're impacting their team? Well, I mean, honestly, one of the simple ones is to ask them, right? I mean, I think think if you work for an organization that has a built-in feedback process, it's something you should absolutely take seriously. And I encourage any leader out there um, to have an open dialogue, like, like a humble genuine desire to get better dialogue to say, here's what I heard in the feedback. Um, Here's what I, how I'm trying to make sense of it. I appreciate this. And here's what I plan to do going forward. And I'd like to have a dialogue with you at some point in time about whether or not I'm doing that well. If you're not in an organization that has sort of structured feedback, I think you need to go and get it right. Like as Ray talked about earlier, the heart of self-observation is noticing the difference between your identity, which is how you see yourself and your reputation, which is how other people see you. And unless you are a, uh, putting yourself in a position to, to receive narrative about your reputation, you can't make sense of the difference. So you've got to find a way to collect that. And an interesting thing to notice is if people are hesitant to give it to you, then you're doing something wrong. Like that in and of itself is feedback um, and probably something worth talking to, you know, somebody within HR or an external party like a coach in order to figure out like, how do I get meaningful feedback on myself? I think the second tip that I would offer on this is to, as Ray highlighted, like this art of self-observation, there are certain moments that you can actually 
collect data on yourself. And a great one, as Ray highlighted earlier, is when someone, one of your employees comes with a question, just in that moment, notice what is my, like, what's my default tendency here? What do I want to do? Because most of us are going to notice, I want to just give an answer. And I want to feel good about the answer that I give. Whereas, you know, if you want to be a better coach, the right reaction in that moment might be to say, well, what do you think? Or how would you act on this if I wasn't here, which is one of my favorites. Um, And if you notice that that's uncomfortable for you, then you've also just collected data on, you know, like how would I normally handle this? What would they normally experience? Go ahead and try something different in that moment. Like go ahead and do the open-ended question. What would you do? And also notice how your employees respond. If they're like, oh, I don't know. I haven't thought of it. Usually you're so good about telling me what to do. You're starting to pick up a story about how you're being experienced. Again, there's no judgment there. People are probably coming to you because they do value your opinions. We're, and we're not suggesting that's the wrong thing to do in every situation, but we're suggesting if you want to improve as a coach, there's a growth moment to start to work on. So those would be a couple of things I would do. Yeah, I, w- I would add on that. I'll only be, agree 100%, right? The, the, Eric and I have worked together for a while, so we typically agree with each other. The, the, the thing I would say that is is there is are you open to the feedback and can you can you figure out how to hear the feedback there is some feedback that's just a matter of degree i am notoriously a non-detailed person if there is a list of 50 things to do if i do the top five i'm pretty happy and if somebody would ask me they would say ray were you detailed in that instance i would say man to myself yeah that did five out of 50 that's pretty good right if i go to some of my more detailed colleagues they were like you were an absolute horror on this and here's the things you did not deliver that you were supposed to deliver. That is a matter of degree. And that's important to understand because sometimes we think we're using these umbrella words of detailed or strategic or something else. And we may have different degrees of how we deliver that and understanding those differences in perception can really come if we have deeper conversations around feedback. The other suggestion I would have on feedback is find a third party observer to observe you in action. I had a great case of a client I'm coaching at a a medium sized firm, but very hierarchical, lots of really intelligent people, senior leader. And this person had to put, unfortunately, on a performance improvement plan. And they were giving this person the feedback in the moment. And they told me they were they were observing themselves as we were going through this coaching that they they were very direct, right? But they had a third party observer that was there that was HR. And when the the meeting was over, HR actually leaned in and said, we have some feedback for you. Um, we, We appreciate the clarity that which you delivered that message. However, we also have a value of empowering and respecting the individual. And even when somebody is on a performance improvement plan, we believe they have the ability to turn it around. And, and we want to give, we want to lean in with that as a firm. And he took that to heart. This came as we've been coaching because he said, I hadn't heard that, right? I, I, I couldn't see myself in the moment doing what they said I was doing. And I couldn't also allow myself to not deliver in that way because I thought that was the expectation. Once HR came back and kind of said that to me, it was a wake up call to say, maybe there is a different approach I can try. And he said his second conversation, he was a little bit more open. They had a conversation of what was getting in the way. He started to understand some things that were relative to this person's performance improvement plan on why they were showing up as they did. And it changed the way that they had the conversation. So I think that that outside observer in certain contexts 
can be a really great source of observation for you. And also to, to Eric's point on the self-observation, like if, if we are really being honest with ourselves, we know we have meetings where we can, you know, maybe it's just me, but I get done with that meeting and I'm like, mm, I don't think I showed up the way I would in, have intended to show up because emotions got the best of me. Or I don't think I showed up as prepared as I could have because I'm, I'm overloaded right now. Right. Like I can observe in the moment and know those. But oftentimes what will get in the way of that is my intention was to prepare, but I couldn't because I'm overloaded. So I'm going to let myself off the hook. That's fine. We just have to make sure that we know what other people observed was you were a hot mess. Right. That 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 fact doesn't change. You might have had the best reasons for being a hot mess, but you were a hot mess. And so that self-observation and what happens because of that can be a great way to kind of pick up on some feedback that we might not think we have access to, but we have access to each and every day. You know, and that brings up this idea, and you guys both kind of mentioned it of, you know, when you start to coach people and, you know, you start kind of maybe turning it on them in a way where you say, hey, here's a problem. Instead of me giving you the solution, instead of me being the one, how would you? And you kind of put the script back on them so they have an opportunity to make a decision and grow. Internally, though, or on, on the other side, on the leadership perspective, it can feel like, well, what's my value now? Like if I'm if I'm letting other people who have a solution come in and I'm like having them make the decision, well, what am I doing now? Like what's my value? Or if I'm, um, you know, giving some of my workload to someone else, so they could grow, you know, well, now do I have value? That brings this idea of, well, is someone else going to see that? Almost like this imposter thing, like, am I really in leadership? You know, so how do um, leaders get comfortable in that space of knowing that, no, that is your role is to is to give up and let other people make decisions? Yeah, I, I love this question all day long because we get it nonstop. What is my role? What's my value, et cetera? How many organizations have, you know, some sort of principle that sounds like people are our most important asset, right? If you took down the company, but gave us back our people, we could rebuild this in five years. I've heard all of these narratives, right? All of these narratives focus on people center because it's the quote unquote right thing to say. That's what we say. That's what the business books say. That's what Jim Collins said. Yet the delivery of that is I'm caught in my own ego and I have to have the solution as opposed to trusting people to do what they may want to do or know how to do, right? We are in no way saying coaching is the only way forward in terms of leading. There are times of teaching. There are times of advice. There are times of standards, right? There are times of very clear, direct feedback that says this is what we need to do. But it's not all the time. And most of the time, people find themselves in those moments where all the time because of name the excuse. What value do I deliver? I don't have the time to do this. I've got a lot on my plate. This is our natural style. Here's how we make things work. We're a hard company, whatever it is. There's an unwillingness to engage. And, and what I would say is if you have any semblance of being follower first, a people first organization, et cetera, you would see the value you're delivering in developing people, right? You would see that coaching. If I develop somebody who no longer needs to come to me for answers on how to solve problems, I think I've created a lot of value for the organization in not only what that person might, how that person grow other sections of the organization. 
So you are printing money in terms of creating competencies that not a lot of people are creating because it's experiential and it requires somebody with the patience and the knowledge and the skills to be able to develop somebody in a way that really allows them to get the best out of themselves, but also recognize that they have to grow and develop at their own time. So I, I have little tolerance for what value do I deliver if the value is rooted in the ego and the answer and the solution? That doesn't mean you can't be smart. It doesn't mean you can't be a problem solver, et cetera. It's just, there's a different way to look at value of human capital and developing that in a way in which you would want to be developed, I think is a very powerful case for why you would want to practice this type of leadership methodology. You know, finally, as we begin to wrap things up, uh, next week, we are going to talk about how do we take the mindset of a coach and what we've learned this week, and then how do we work along with a coachee? What does that coachee look like? What are, what are some of those qualities? So, you know, real quick from both of you, how do we take what we learned today to begin to set us up for next week? How do we begin to frame our minds and prepare for getting to the, the, that coachee, uh, coach, you know, idea through this series? Well, I think it, I think for starters, um, as we've referred to a few times, I mean, I, I think this, this concept of self-observation is important because I think um, when we get into the relationship between the coach and the coachee, what we're going to recognize is that both of these people are at their core, just humans with different sets of values, different sets of personalities, and we make sense of the world in different ways. And I think, um, as we sit down at the table with another individual, our own ability to acknowledge the way that we make sense of the world and how that's different from others is what will allow us to unleash the potential of the client themselves or of the person that we're coaching. So I really like the idea of, of putting yourself in posi positions to experience other perspectives, of noticing when people um, disagree with you, but also seem to have a great point and acknowledging that there's something there of value that they're bringing to the table. Um, and, and just to, to be aware of your own strengths and weaknesses so that you can begin to see those better in other people. So I think that's where I would start. What I would add is recognizing that you can only coach those who actually want to be coached. And so as you think about the role that coaching plays within your organization, the types of of folks that are working within your organization and, and what people may or may not want, I have to respect the autonomy of the individual first and foremost. And so this, this is a partnership. We'll get into this as we talk about the concept of the coaching relationship and the coaching process. But for a coachee, it often requires them entering into some territory that raises a bit of vulnerability, a bit of growth, a bit of need, needing to check their own ego at the door. And that can be uncomfortable. So I, I want to meet somebody where they are. Um, and as I do that, working with a coachee, depending on the relationship, you know, if it's a manager direct report, that is a different dynamic than a hired executive coach and a client. And so being conscious of all of those things as a coach and then entering into that relationship in a conscious way is where I would start the conversation on the coachee. I agree with everything Ray said. I think it's in addition, it's also hard to be a great coach if you yourself are a bad client. And so it is kind of interesting to notice, like, how do you show up when you're being coached? How do you show up when you're getting feedback? Um, because that probably says a lot about how open you are to other perspectives. So notice your own behavior over the course of the next week when you are being coached in whatever format that takes. Um, and that'll, that'll help you understand your client a lot better. 
Again, Ray Luther and Eric Johnson, Kelly School of Business Leadership Coaches. Uh, just thank you guys again. Stick around for next week where we get into the idea of coaching as part of this four-part series on leadership and coaching development. This has been another episode of the ROI Podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.